Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org slash donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring boundary pushers, rabble-rousers, freaks, and geeks who are shaking up the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by one of the biggest freaks there is, Danny Rosen, president of BrandFuel. Some of you may be familiar with the popular Kickstarter campaign for a cooler known as the coolest. It became the biggest project in Kickstarter history by raising over $13 million. As coolers are a big item in the promotional products industry, a number of us paid close attention to how this product would roll out after its incredible fundraising success. Sadly, they ran into major production and distribution problems that have dogged them to this day. Danny was an investor in the project and shared the updates from the company founder with me over the past two years. These became the inspiration for this episode today. The challenges faced by the coolest highlight the divide between coming up with a cool idea and manufacturing that idea and getting it into customers' hands. We wanted to explore this disconnect by speaking with an industry veteran that knows a thing or two about product design, sourcing, and manufacturing. And that man is Dan Edge at Peerless Umbrella. And while this episode is not about the coolest per se, we wanted to use it as an example to get us started about how to bring products to market in our industry. So some background on Dan before we get started. Dan has been working in the promotional products industry since 1997 and has spent all of those 19 years with Peerless. He is their national sales manager and is also responsible for product development and marketing for the company. In 2016, Dan was named Best Boss by PPB Magazine. He has served on multiple PPAI committees and is active on many social media and industry groups. Dan resides with his wife and two kids in New Jersey. And with that, welcome to the program, sir. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, I want to start off with one for you, Dan, and then I'm going to have one for you, Danny. This is going to be the Dan versus Danny uh, conversation? Yeah, and I'm probably going to get your names mixed up. All so right. it's just, you know, I'm a little slow today. So question for you, Dan Edge. Yes. Okay, so we are seeing more crowdsourced products coming to the market through platforms like Kickstarter, as I mentioned in the intro. However, we are also seeing more manufacturing disasters as inexperienced entrepreneurs try to source from overseas. Do you see this stuff coming from a mile away? Yes and no. I mean, the ideas are incredible. I'm a huge fan of Shark Tank and Mark Cuban. And I remember Mark Cuban said on one of the episodes, he said, some of the best entrepreneurs are the worst salespeople. And 
a lot of times I think they're so creative they're not as focused on the intricacies of the product. And it's really important that you work, I think, hand in hand throughout from beginning stages till final with the factory that's going to develop and build the product for you because they have a lot of great ideas. They have a lot of engineers in the factories that can help you build the best product. You know, to relate it to something we do, I mean, we have graphic artists who will design these incredible umbrellas, intricate artwork, incredible designs. And I'll look at it and I'm like, you know, that looks incredible, but do not show it to the client because there's no way we can build that. There's no way we can print it the way it's shown. It has to be tweaked. So I think a lot of those entrepreneurs don't have a lot of that knowledge, at least up front. Right. And Danny, as I mentioned in the intro, you were an investor in this Kickstarter campaign for the crew list. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose to invest in it as well as Maybe some of the issues that you've been made aware of through the updates ever since. Yeah, sure. I'm an incredible fan of crowdsourcing and crowdfunding. I think there's a huge opportunity in our market to capitalize on that if done right. But I saw this product and the price points, the early investor price points, as something that excited me. One, because I just wanted one of these things. I mean, this thing has got a built-in power bank. It's got these roller wheels. It's got a little boom box built in. It's got a blender for Pete's sake. So, I mean, who wouldn't want one of these things to carry? Margaritas. Right. Yeah. Margaritas. And so one was just, I wanted to get the product, but two, I also, it was sort of a social experiment for me. I wanted to go through the motions with something like this, which was a, a fairly high buy-in for something like this. I've done smaller projects before, but to see how it all unveiled itself. And then third, I wanted to see if they would bring it into our marketplace. So I had reached out to Ryan in the early days and said, hey, you know, we're a distributor in this market. We're interested in seeing if you would bring this into our marketplace for corporate clients of ours. And the guy was getting inundated with his Kickstarter campaign. It's the largest of its kind. He wasn't able to even answer. Uh, we tried to get him on a podcast at one point in time. I think you remember, Mark. But mine was somewhat selfish, but also on a professional level. I really wanted to see, could you take a crowdsourced cool product like this and bring it into our marketplace. And I failed like he is failing in delivering my coolest, which I still have not yet to get. So, Right. But on that note, Danny, like you, I know, have had some interest in trying to bring crowdsourcing from a B2B perspective into the industry. Can you tell me about what it is you've tried to do in the past and whether you think crowdsourcing could ever play a role in a traditional industry like Promo? Sure. Well, I, just, I have this theory that the best products in our industry are probably not on the Hong Kong trade show floor as a Me Too product, although I think there's some great stuff coming out of there. But we often see suppliers coming out with the same new product in the marketplace. And so they sort of cannibalize each other over time with price issues and inventory, and, and it ends up being a race to the bottom. So the thinking is, is there an opportunity for end users, so our buyers who contact companies like Brandfuel and Rightsley, for example, and say, hey, do you have something like this? Could you create something like this? And is there a marketplace, is my question, is there a marketplace, a greater marketplace for this product idea that they may have or that we may have at Brandfuel? And if that idea is there and I can put it together just like the Kickstarter folks do as a concept, and I could invite suppliers to look at the opportunity and say, you know what, I would invest in this. Matter of fact, I might even co-invest with a company like Brandfuel who might get an exclusive sales angle or a royalty off of this over time, but bring something like this to market. So I think the great ideas come from end users. I think some really great ideas come from distributors. 
And certainly suppliers are bringing those to marketplace too. But I think in the B2B space, it's almost like you would consider a partnership between distributors and suppliers. Distributors have a great idea and bring something to life through that funnel. Right. So it's almost like the distributor in this example is the one that's playing a pretty big role because you say the distributor, and I agree with this, the distributor has a lot more contact with the end client than the supplier does. And so if you're to use brand fuel as an example, if you've got an end client with a really cool idea, then you can almost be that go-between like you are now to some extent, but then connect with a Dan Edge or with a Jason Lukash at Origati or whatever the case may be to go and introduce something amazing for client XYZ. And then you then spin that off into like a separate business where this new product is now available to other distributors through this partnership between brand fuel and whoever the supplier is. Well, I think our industry is, is craving for innovation and R&D. You know, China does a great job. I think they're also equally as well, some great manufacturers all over the world in the U.S., But I think the one thing that's really important, the question that I hear from customers often is, what is the newest, coolest thing that's out there? And if we have a great answer for that, then we gain a sale and and are entrusted by our clients a little bit more. So the question is really around, you know, are we doing a good job with regards to innovation in our industry? Because we need great new products. And so I'd like to pose a question to you, Dan, about that. And it really is around a real world situation I think happens to distributors from time to time. Uh, And that is... If BrandFuel was asked by a client to create a product or we came up with an idea that we felt like Peerless would do a really good job bringing to the marketplace, knowing we have deficiencies doing what you all do, yep. would you be interested in co-investing in bringing a product to life, knowing we've got a client that wants to buy? And then the second part of that question is, you know, would you be willing to bring it into your entire catalog and market it to the distributors and possibly work out a royalty agreement with my company? Yeah, absolutely. You know what? I mean, we're still an industry based on relationships and that's amazing. I've developed some amazing friendships with distributors. There's many products in our line right now that are there because of conversations I had with different distributors across the country, asking them, you know, where are their voids? Where are their holes in the industry, especially in our product category? So we really try to work backwards sometimes and try to fill those voids with certain products. We've also had people come to us for custom projects, direct import orders where they will call me, we'll have lengthy conversations, we'll go back and forth with design applications, and we will build a product specifically for them. And then we've even had such success with it, we've actually brought it in as a stock item with the distributor's full knowledge and support, and they thought it was great because... They also know that they could sell that product to many, many other customers of theirs. Right. But Dan, in that specific case, when you do that custom deal for a specific distributor and then you bring it as a stock item, have you ever had a financial relationship like the one Danny just mentioned where that distributor has either co-invested or gets some kind of royalty or is that like a brand new territory? That would be a brand new territory. I mean, it's not out of the realm. But for the most part, they're looking to Peerless, to me, as their manufacturing arm. They come up with some incredible ideas. I mean, I'm working on a job right now with a distributor in California for a laptop case from our Threads line. And she's much more creative than I am. And I I listen to her and I listen to what she's suggesting. 
but we are the builders. I mean, we're the ones that make it happen. So she has the ideas. I work with my factory. What's doable? How can we make this work? And they find a way to do it. Yeah. You know, I find more of the ideas for us. And, you know, I, I go to China once a year minimum. You know, I've been walking Canton Fair for years. And, you know, I understand the frustration some distributors have when they walk Vegas and they're seeing nothing new. I mean, the past few years walking Canton, I'm not seeing anything new. And I have found that if I want new product, I have to bring the new product to them and let them help me develop it. Right. I think that's an interesting segue into a question I have for you, Dan, about inspiration and innovation. Yeah. How does Peerless seek inspiration when coming up with new products? I am a shopaholic. I don't necessarily <laughs> buy. I love to shop. And my wife loves it because I'm one of the few guys when she says, hey, honey, do you want to go to the mall on a Sunday? I'm like, sure, let's go. So yeah, I mean, I look at retail. I look at retail trends. I walk different trade shows. You know, I'm right here in New York City. So we have that luxury of some of the best shopping, some of the greatest stores, and some of the greatest trade shows come through the Javits Center. I mean, I'll walk the New York gift show if not once, twice a year. I'll visit the hotel motel show because that's a big category for us. So I'm curious to know what's going on in the hotel industry. I'll walk the stationary show at the Javits Center. You know, I'll look at retailers like Banana Republic, J. Crew, Herschel, Lululemon, you know, super trendy, on trend stores, great product lines. That's what our customers, the end users, that's what they're seeing out there. So if we can emulate some of those products that they're offering, I think it just makes your line that much stronger. Right. On that note, so that sounds like a really great way to find and deliver great products into the marketplace. How do you know if a distributor is interested in these great ideas that you're bringing? You come up with the next new umbrella that you think is going to be fantastic. Are you interacting with distributors? Are you doing kind of focus groups, feedback? Yeah. And also, how are you navigating the all-powerful and challenging question around inventory? Yeah, all great question. You know, it's, it, it's such a crapshoot. I wish I could tell you there was a, a true science to it. We get a lot of our distributors involved in the product development stages. When we go to prototype, before I order anything, I have some trusted distributors that I will send it to, meet with, ask them their opinion. What do you think your clients like about this, don't like about it? Colors, things that we should be adding, things that we should be taking away, price point, what's a fair price to charge for this? I mean, I could design. And that's, you know, one of the issues you can also get into trouble with is you can overdesign something. And we've done that. I've, I'm guilty of that. I mean, you know, I have an eye. I want this perfect piece and I want to add the right things, the bells and whistles. And at the end of the day, it's going to cost X amount. And unfortunately, X amount is just too expensive sometimes for the promotional products industry. So we have to, you know, sort of scale it back a little bit and just make it more price friendly. So we definitely bring distributors in all the time as far as conversation about why products are good or not. That's great. I have one follow-up. I'm going to turn it back over to Mark. My follow-up is any horror stories with regards to, you know, a product you thought was just going to be a grand slam? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're, they're still sitting on product from 1975. You know, it goes both ways. I remember, I want to say, eight years ago, we brought out this little wallet. It had a little mini fold umbrella in it, place for your credit cards and keys. And we brought it to Vegas. We had minimal inventory for the new year. People in Vegas were going crazy over it. My boss, literally from the trade show floor, 
called our factory in China and said, how quickly can you rush me 25,000 more units? We sat on those 25,000 units for about six years. Um, oh my God. <laughs> it just, whatever excitement there was on the trade show floor, it just didn't correspond to actual sales. <laughs> but the flip side is we could bring something in, be very gun shy about it, bring in minimal inventory. We had an umbrella that we introduced this year. We brought in, you know, when I first showed it to my boss, I showed the idea to him. His first words were, that is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. Brought it to Vegas. It was the bomb. People were going crazy over it. We brought in, I think, very conservative, maybe 1,500 or 2,000 units in one color. We sold out less than three weeks after Vegas. So then you're scurrying, trying to get more inventory in because you don't want to lose the momentum. So it's definitely a challenge. You, you never know. I mean, and I've been on the other side where people have shown me items and I thought it was silly. Did it make sense? And we ended up doing it anyway. It was the right consensus decision and it was one of our best sellers. So you never know what you think might be great, might not correspond and vice versa. Dan, I wanted to ask you about threads and how that line came about. You know, at first glance, you'd think that umbrellas and bags are pretty different from one another in terms of operational efficiencies, in terms of the kinds of people who buy each product. And I'm pretty familiar with the threads line myself, and it has a much more fashion forward, kind of cool retail vibe to it, whereas your umbrellas, not to say umbrellas are cool, but there's just it's an umbrella. traditional and it's an umbrella. And you'd think that the two products and cultures wouldn't necessarily mesh. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And just, uh, I did hear the last Rebel podcast where they were knocking umbrellas. So <laughs> <laughs> I did hear that. Your chance to get back at whoever was knocking. Right, right. No, I'll, I'll play. I'll play fair. You know what? What's the correlation? I, I like to say just two quality products. You know, the idea started, believe it or not, it was a distributor's idea. It was uh, dinner in Vegas eight, 10 years ago. And she was just saying to me, you know, you guys should really look, there's such a void in this industry for retail inspired bags. There's a lot of people doing bags in the industry, but most of them are more promotional. So I was like, oh, and she's like, I could help you. So realistically, it started over dinner with a distributor and the two of us just started meeting and developing product. And it sort of morphed into something bigger than what we thought it would originally be. Yeah, it's great because, you know, my frustration with our umbrella line and umbrellas, that's our bread and butter. I mean, that is, you know, 90% of our volume is done in umbrellas, probably 10% is in the bag line. But at the same point, I see the growth of our company coming more from the bags than from the umbrella side. There's only so many ways you can reinvent an umbrella. Bags, I find it, it's limitless. There's no barriers. I mean, you can do a lot of different things, a lot of different shapes, use a lot of different fabrics, you know, usability, what people are looking for. So I have a lot of fun with it. Right. You know, that as me thinking about just our industry categories, and of course, the bag category is quite a bit larger than the umbrella category, right? Right. And I'm not sure what the numbers are. I could tell you umbrellas fall into the category textiles, which is split, I think, between umbrellas, robes, and towels. And I think we make up less than 2% of industry sales. Yeah. And you guys are a big player in that categories, which leads me to this question about categories and how suppliers grow. So right now you're doing 90% of your sales in umbrellas, 10% are in this bag line. Yep. If you're to look at three to five years out, do you see peerless 
kind of dropping the umbrella from its name or like Apple computer, you know, yep. <laughs> uh, and using the bag expertise that you have as a springboard for much greater sales growth than you could ever enjoy by just staying in the umbrella category where you're already a market leader. Yeah. You know, you're exactly right. Our legal formal name is Peerless Umbrella Company. On our business cards, our stationery, we just go by Peerless now. We have dropped the umbrella name. Again, we are the leaders in the umbrella category. We never want to lose that focus. We also have looked three, five years out and we see so many things changing in this industry. So many suppliers are getting so much wider. They're offering, I'll say, every product under the sun. You know, you start to think, how can they be an expert in any product category if they're offering so much? And they've really turned their salespeople into multi-line reps. We've taken a much different approach. We are very, I always say we're a boutique style company. We're very hands-on. We're very narrow, but we know our product category better than anybody else. To us, it's our livelihood. There are other big companies that have started umbrellas as a category. But again, you know, there's no comparison. We know how to decorate them better. We like to be able to, you know, say we're the innovators of new styles, whether it be in frames or handles. So we want to just really hone in on one thing and be the best at it. Which leads me back to umbrellas. Yeah. (laughs) I want you, but this isn't a typical question about, you know, some traditional umbrella. You, of course, introduced the Rebel umbrella, which is an umbrella that I think folds both ways and is pretty innovative. I think we've seen some of the stuff at retail. Right. I'm curious if you can tell me about how the Rebel umbrella came to market any challenges that came about in designing and manufacturing that product? Yeah. Well, it's funny to go back to the beginning of the conversation. The Rebel was on Kickstarter. And interestingly enough, it made such a splash on Kickstarter. The gentleman who quote unquote invented it did a video. The video went viral. I must have had 25 distributors email me links. I mean, every day I would get sent a link. Hey, have you seen this? You guys should be doing this. How come you're not doing it? You know, I had seen that frame in China probably 10 years ago when I first started going. At the point, the quality wasn't there. It wasn't perfected yet. So I was very interested in the product. I thought, you know what, if this many people are reaching out to me, it should be something I'm taking seriously and looking into. So we reached out to the gentleman who was on Kickstarter, similar to what Danny did. And he was, you know, very cordial, got right back to us, but he was very interested in raising more capital. He said, we're in the process of raising capital for our campaign. Please touch base with me in three months. So we said, okay, no problem. We waited three months, contacted him again. It was like we got the same exact answer. Oh, we're still working on our campaign. Meanwhile, while he was working on his campaign, there were many factories in China all making his product and getting around his patent because he had a patent and we researched his patent and worked with our patent attorney to make sure that there was no legal, you know, we weren't stepping on his toes. Our patent attorney assured us that we weren't. So while, you know, he was raising capital, we were building the product and started selling it. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm thinking about companies like Peerless that are out there that are doing innovative things like that. Who would you guys say, both of you, are suppliers in our space right now that are doing truly innovative things? that are constantly pushing out new products, some of which are probably failing, some of which are succeeding. And I know Orage Audio is on that list, our buddy Jason, who's also yep. a, a remote kitchen chef. 
What other companies do you guys see out there that are really excelling in the product innovation side? I think ETS, I have some good friends who work there. And again, some of the best information I get, you know, and, and you guys totally understand it. It's just, it's talking to your peers, talking to other suppliers, what's working for you, what are the best practices. And they put a lot of money into research and development. And with that, they've seen incredible growth. They've built a beautiful line and people like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you, Mark? I always look to the apparel companies as the ones that are often leading innovation, certainly from a soft good perspective. I know that a lot of us are thinking hard goods. In my backyard, there's a company called Redwood Classics. They're a, a really innovative, creative group of apparel pros that have designed extensively for retail, but have also been able to bring it into the promotional industry without all the problems that you see with typical retail companies that come into our industry. Kathy and her team have always been really good at balancing fantastic stock with amazing creative. We on the right sleeve side have worked with them for the better part of 15 years and you know they continue to push us and vice versa. There's another company in Vancouver in Vancouver, BC called Boardroom. Mark and his team there have done some incredible things. I just look at it and go, like we need more people like that in the industry that are small and nimble and flexible and creative. And I love the fact that they're making a lot of that in North America, well, in this case, Canada. And so I think there's another you know, vote for that as well in terms of creativity and innovation made right within North America. So that's maybe a little plug there. Yeah. So, but but I, I agree with you, Danny. I mean, having been on the distributor side for as long as you and I have been in the business and having gone to Expo for years and years, there's not a lot of innovators on the show floor. And I would say that you know, categorically, I really don't feel like you see that. I think you probably have at any given show, probably 10 to 15% of the show is truly innovative. And 85% of the show is really more focused on solid and deep inventory. And that's really important too. I think you need that for your company store programs. But at the end of the day, I think that we need to see a little bit more innovation. And I would hope that these suppliers that we just talked about are really put on a pedestal and Dan, I did put you in that category too, which is why we have you on the show here today. Thank you. But that's certainly the public service announcement that I would hope we could, uh, you know, get out there. Yeah, I would challenge suppliers. Any supplier who has taken the time to listen to this podcast, think beyond the product for a moment, because I think we get caught up in the product, but we don't think as much about the delivery of the product, the find the end user. I think suppliers do a pretty good job of that right now, but. I think there are a few other areas that we really could start to work on in our industry. One is design. You mentioned ETS. They, they do some really nice design work. And it's like journal books. They, they do some really creative stuff. And I know there are a lot of good suppliers out there around design. But most of the time, what we're selling is we're slapping a logo on a product. And it's pretty easy. But we talk about designing beyond your logo. I think that's something we need to think about as distributors in selling. But I also think suppliers should embrace design elements. Uh, a second area is packaging. I've seen HIT has come out with some new packaging logo, Mark, you know, how the product is delivered, not just a product in a sleeve, you know, this Chinese made sticker. Think about that, but also the box that it comes in, these, these boxes that come from China to your warehouse and back out to the end users or the buyers, oftentimes are beat up and ragged. You know, is there value in having boxes and packaging looking a lot better for the end user? And then the last challenge is around ROI. I think most of the time that's left up to the distributor and the end user, the clients to figure out ROI around product. But can suppliers you know, be challenged to think about how can they help us, whether it's through technology, 
apps and things like that, how to help us get our clients to realize what they really want to, which is often more qualified sales leads, demos, onboarding new employees, employee satisfaction, and things like that. And I think as we all start thinking about that in a collaborative fashion, we can do much better as an industry. Yeah. Agree. Hey, I want to ask a question of the two of you, and I can weigh in with my perspective afterwards. But this idea of creativity not being particularly compatible with operational success. So this is question just came for me, so I'm kind of spouting off the top of my head here. So we've seen recently, we've got the, the coolest example where you've got a really creative guy that wasn't able to quite connect the dots to turn his idea into manufacturing success. This past week, we see American Apparel. I mean, they filed for bankruptcy twice in the last 13 months and was just scooped up at a fire sale price by Gildan. And one could argue that American Apparel, while incredibly successful, sort of in its heyday, ultimately failed because creativity just ultimately got the better of them. There are many, many theories out there, but that's one theory that I'll put out there. I wanted to get your perspective, Dan and Danny, I'm not sure which ones want to answer first, on how it is that we can do a better job of bringing creativity to the forefront in this industry, but at the same time, making sure that creativity is not flaky <laughs> from a business perspective. It can actually deliver the product in a reliable, on-time fashion. You know, I think like you said, when you design any new product, A, you have to be patient because we bring out a lot of new products every year. Not as many as some. I, mean, I see, you know, certain suppliers where they'll promote, oh, over 500 new products. I always wonder what the second line is, how many products are taking out of their line. But when you bring a new product in, you have to be patient with it. This industry is funny. You can show stuff. It goes through the chain of the model where distributors are seeing it. They're getting excited about it. They, in turn, have to get their clients excited about it and then find the opportunity to sell it to them. And that takes time. It could take six months. It could take nine months. It could take 12 months. So sometimes when we come out with new products, they don't do great on the onset, but you stick with it. You know, If your gut tells you it's going to be successful, and again, it fills a hole or, or fills a need for the end users. That's what it's all about, is, is trying to find products that they will want, they'll get excited about, and they'll use. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I would think about this, maybe reverse engineer the thinking a bit. I'm using fast fashion as something that is in my mind right now. I know there's a lot of cons to fast fashion, how things are manufactured, the child labor laws, things like that. But what's happening in the fashion market is that Products are coming out at a rapid pace. They're going up on shelves and, and coming off with new product coming in all the time. I think we could probably take a page or two from that playbook to some extent and look at first the production capabilities. And you know, when I think about you know how things are produced in our industry, we've got more of an old-fashioned way of doing things. You've got to do large runs. It's, it's a whole lot of labor. You know, but are there ways to create new printing or decoration processes that allow us to do smaller numbers of products, being nimble, introducing products to market, manufacturing through 3D print technology, you know, what's really coming in, in the future. But I think that's going to be really hard. I think that's a super investment. There's a lot of risk around that. But the companies that start figuring that out now and go through the pain and the investments will probably be in a, a pretty good place, I think, in the future, assuming they manage it really well. But, you know, I think that's a challenge and an opportunity in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, I, I know we have products now and I'll call them hybrid because, you know, you talk about printing. I think the you know, industry is getting more colorful. People are demanding 
better imprinted logos, bigger imprint areas. So an umbrella is a great product. It has a great big imprint area, great big palette to work with. But on the domestic side, when we are warehousing umbrellas here and we're printing them here, you're limited to a center panel imprint. But people don't want that as much anymore. They want this elaborate design over the entire top of the umbrella. So it's either figure it out or die a slow death. So with sublimation printing now, it used to be five years ago to do an umbrella with an over-the-top design, you were looking at 1,200 pieces. That was a problem because most people can't buy 1,200 pieces. It was a 90 to 120-day lead time. That's a problem because most people can't wait 90 to 120 days anymore. So what we've done is we figured out a way to do the printing overseas. We fly covers in. We're a domestic manufacturer as well as an importer. So we have that ability to keep the frames here in New Jersey, bringing the covers in from overseas. We've been able to get our minimums down from 1,200 to 100. And we've been able to get our lead times down from, like I said, 90 to 120 days down to 35 days. So again, it resolved two major hurdles for customers and for distributors. Is it a little bit more expensive? Absolutely. But you have an incredible piece. Great job. Okay, Dan, I want to change subject here to talk about the current political environment in the U.S. And I'm curious. That's scary. Well, (laughs) (laughs) whether it's scary or not, I'm curious to get your perspective on whether the current political environment with increased protectionism will negatively or positively impact the promotional products industry. And I think about the tremendous reliability that we have on China. Right. And if tariffs go up and there's increased protectionism, getting goods into the U.S., I can only imagine that's going to spell disaster for our industry. Am I not seeing it correctly or what do you think? Definitely you're seeing it correctly. I mean, if duties go up that much to, you know, quote unquote, create more jobs here domestically, personally, I think it'll backfire. You know, I look at a company like Peerless, we have a hundred, I'm going to say 130 employees here. The majority of our business is imported items from China. But with that, we could still employ 130 people here, both as customer service people, salespeople, people in our factory, people on our loading dock and shipping. We have a sizable company and we benefit from those importing abilities. If it got too expensive, I would be afraid that this company would shrink as many other suppliers would. And, you know, the cost to make an umbrella here in the U.S., I mean, we have domestic umbrellas. A golf umbrella, I think, is about $40 net. That same umbrella made in China that we import and print here is $12 net. So, you know, much more affordable, lets us sell many more units, thus hiring many more people to do that. Right. How about you, Danny? Are you concerned as a distributor or do you see the current political environment as an opportunity for the industry? I think it's an opportunity. You and I talk about a a brand we're both fond of, Mark, Shinola. Yeah. And I look at what they've done in Detroit and a depressed area. And I think there's magic in that brand. I think there's magic in a lot of brands. They have been strapped by regulations, by taxation, by all kinds of stuff that has kept them from realizing their potential competition, overseas competition. So I I don't know what's going to happen, but my sense is that it's going to fuel, if I can use that word, I think it's going to fuel some innovation and entrepreneurialism and some spirit around that. It will allow us to get back to selling things that are made in the U.S., uh, getting excited about supporting the country. 
bringing jobs back, all the things that I think are the positives with this new administration, at least the hopeful positives at this point. I'm going to give you the opportunity, Danny, to ask the last question or give Dan Edge the opportunity for the last word. I have one comment, but I don't really have a question. I'm just glad we've been able to have this discussion because the crowdsourcing thing is really interesting. And I think we should all keep a pulse on you know, what's happening in the, uh, the Kickstarter space. Quirky is another one to check out. Indiegogo, there's all kinds of really cool platforms out there to keep an eye on what new products might come into our marketplace, or maybe there's some partnerships that could be birthed out of those. Dan, your, your insights have been incredibly valuable. and Thanks for that. I, my last comment is around the perks around doing crowdfunding. So if you're an investor, typically you get an early you know, sort of cost or a discounted rate for, for something that might come to market if they make it to market. And that's a plus, but they also offer perks a lot of times to invest. So if you look at Kickstarter campaigns, I think traditionally the most successful campaigns in crowdfunding and crowdsourcing have the very best promotional products as, as perks. You know, you see, you get the t-shirts, you get the journal books, you get the whatever it might be. But I think there's an opportunity in our industry to align with crowdfunding through being the perk that helps investors spend the money. That's it. That's a good comment. It's a great thought. Thank you. Dan, we're going to turn it over to you to have the last word. You know, you can tell folks where they can contact you if they don't already know you and who doesn't know you. I don't know about that. And leave the Promo Kitchen community with one final thought. Yeah. Well, again, I want to thank both of you for the invitation to join you today. It was great. It was fun talking about a lot of the topics. And I agree with Danny. You know what? There's so many places you can look for inspiration. I think social media, I mean, Facebook alone. I mean, I look at my newsfeed every day. And I am just seeing all sorts of new products fill my Facebook wall and my feed. And, you know, I'm always looking at them like, where can I put a logo on that product? Or how can we implement that in our industry? And who's going to implement it? There was one product, I mean, all summer long, constantly was, I think it was called a wind couch, where you, you know, filled it with air and rolled it. And, you know, I'm like, who's going to be the first person? I mean, I was getting samples. By the time I got samples... I think Sweeter had already introduced it, you know, so I'm just happy people are bringing new products to life in our industry. I think it keeps our industry young. It keeps it fresh. You know, new products are great, but at the same point, you know, it's funny, Danny, I think you were talking about, you know, you go into a trade show, you know, you ask what's new, what's the latest and greatest thing. At the end of the day, the majority of your sales are coming from your, your staple items, your core items, but you need the new products to get people excited about your line. I came from the retail industry before this industry, and I was a sales manager. I remember in the young men's department right out of college. I was in the Macy's executive training program. You know, we had this new product called Zubaz. They were like the John Daly, you know, puff pants with the crazy design. (laughs) I mean, and the merchandising rule was you put those at the front of the store. That's what draws them in. But they're going to walk right by it. They're going to get excited about it but they'll walk back to the back of the store and buy a pair of Levi's and that's what they'll end up purchasing. So new products are great. Again, they create excitement. So that's all good stuff. And so many great sources to find new products these days. Like I said, social media, you mentioned Indiegogo. I mean, sites like Urban Daddy and Touch of Modern just offer incredible ideas that get you excited. So yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm with Peerless Umbrella. Feel free to Reach me if you have any questions, dan at peerlessumbrella.com, and I'd be happy to answer any more questions. Awesome. Dan, thank you so much. This was so fun to do this podcast with you. And Danny, I know I called you a freak at the beginning. Hopefully you didn't take offense to that, but I meant it. Thank you. 
Yes. Thanks, gentlemen. That was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.